Welcome to Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg and my co-host as always, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello there. So today on Season 2, Episode 43 of Rising Tide, we're honored to have as one of our guests, National Geographic Explorer in Residence and widely acclaimed hero and voice of the seas, her deepness, Dr. Sylvia Earle. Her latest book is Ocean, A Global Odyssey. We're also happy to be joined by her daughter and the president of Dewar Marine, that stands for Deep Ocean Exploration and Research, Liz Taylor. Since the COVID pandemic, they've also been doing a number of Zoom events together. So welcome to the both of you. Uh, Nice to be on board. (laughs) Thank you. Very nice to be here. And I'd like to start out. um, I think it's wonderful that the two of you, mother and daughter, have this relationship. And I'd like to ask how that relationship turned professional. Well, who says it is? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Lizzie. (laughs) Well, I think it's just sort of a natural, you know, um, evolution, you, you know, just trying to kind of help uh, facilitate things, projects and, and field projects particularly, and and then taking those prob- problem-solving skills and, and kind of um, taking it out to help others in the, to get, you know, below the surface. You know, well, she kind of had me pressing, pressing plants in the, in the garage, uh, you know, kind of practically before I could walk and sent me out to play with the sharks and things like that, you know. <laughs> and like the giant squid, she inks off a lot, right? You have the, all the books and, <laughs> and so forth. So, um, you know, there it, it's been just kind of a lifelong uh, endeavor. And then uh, traveling a lot, going into the field a lot as a kid. And and then uh, t- taking some time off to get back into school. And um, But I was kind of on a pathway to more leaning more towards sciences with marine ornithology. But then kind of a return to base to, to help out more with the businesses that, that she had started the technology businesses and really became very uh, much involved in the, in the special projects, uh, which means the projects that others didn't really, at the company didn't really want to deal with, which was the science, the film, the export sales and things like that, that, that uh, kind of led to where we are today. You were saying pressing plants. You sort of started with marine seaweeds and the like, Sylvia. And and I guess, Liz, you got into seabirds. <laughs> well, it's the ocean from one from the top to the bottom, looking at it as a living system. No, Liz has been a part of the action since she arrived on the scene as a little girl. <laughs> and, exactly. Mm-hmm, we, it must be wonderful having a, a mom who is so knowledgeable to help you learn and explore um, the ocean. How was it growing up with Dr. Sylvia Earle as a mom? Well, I mean, early on, it was, again, it's really a lot about, you know, the family, the family as a whole system, because early on it did, her work really did take her out into the field quite a bit. And so she'd be gone for long periods of time and we didn't have cell phones and things. So we had to wait for postcards and, and eventually maybe a ship to shore radio call, something like that. So there was a lot of um, reliance on my grandmother as well. And she was uh, kind of known as the bird lady of, of Dunedin and, and Florida and would bring in all kinds of birds uh, from, you know, blue jays to 
the pelicans to egrets and everything in between. So it was, it was really, you know, kind of a, I guess a woman-led household and, and now it's evolved into kind of a, you know, woman-led business. So, so did you have a pet pelican as a child? <laughs> we had a pelican for a long time. Well, we had several pelicans. Uh, we had, you know, typically what would happen is that they would arrive to us uh, with their pouches um, slashed up by fishermen mm. or entangled in line or with broken wing or something like that. And there weren't really very many uh, wildlife rescue centers or any re rescue centers at that time. So uh, my grandmother, who was also a nurse, uh, she would just kind of, you know, mend these creatures. And I, I kind of learned alongside. And when did you first spawn Liz? Were, was this before <laughs> or after you went, uh, went underwater with the, uh, with the habitats and the uh, fellow aquanauts? The, the first time I had a chance to live underwater was in 1970, and Liz was 10 years old. So she shared the experience vicariously, but Liz has been on lots of expeditions. And in Florida, we live close to the water, and so she spent early years just getting acquainted with the ocean by being in, on, around, and often under it. But whenever I could on these trips away, I scoop one or more. Sometimes <laughs> I have three children and occasionally all th three of them would come on board. You remember, Liz, in 1978, uh, you were a little bit older, but you still had that, what you do now, that lovely long <laughs> golden hair. And we went to the Bahamas and met up with the dolphin, Sandy. He just loved your hair. <laughs> He yes, he did. He, we were, you know, diving there on the reef, and I was, you know, going along minding my own business, and all of a sudden there was this terrific yank on my hair, and I wheeled around, getting ready to, you know, slug my brother, who would, you know, normally be doing something like that, and and here was this dolphin, you know, he just had literally this this ha 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 ha, you know, smile on his face, like he just really got way of something, and. And he came back and he was like flossing his teeth in my you know, with my hair. And he was really a pest, but, but he was, he was a, a great animal. And he just, you know, he just wanted to, to visit with people. Right. And it's that sort of experience that over time, those experiences stack up and make Liz the person she is. She actually, when you, you first learned to dive as a teenager, a little underage at the time to learn scuba diving, but you had a really tough instructor. <laughs> oh my goodness. That was in the Bahamas when I was saturating in the hydro lab and you got to come down and bring us goodies once in a while. Right. Uh, as part of your, your dive training <laughs> and your communications officer as a teenager with our buddy, um, Bob Nixon, Bob, Bob Wickland, Wickland. And I don't know, those are things that you can learn by being out doing things that you don't learn in school. And Absolutely. even without the professional training Liz has had, just growing up in a household that had the ethic of caring for all forms of life, land and sea, and to appreciate how humans fit into nature and to watch as all of us have. Uh, I've been watching a little bit longer than Liz and and most people, because we've just been around a while, but the changes, how much we've learned in the last 50 years or so, and also how much we've lost. And it's sharing that experience, that education, the looking, knowing why birds matter, 
why fish matters, why we are having an outsized impact on the systems that keep us alive. And also this moment in time when it's really exciting. Liz has two boys who are growing up as a benef- with the benefit of what their mom and dad have learned that get passed along to them in <laughs> concentrated doses, but they too are out there, down there doing things, which is above and beyond what they learn in their more formal training and reading books and, and connected in ways that weren't possible when I was a kid. It's it's really, I think, the best time ever to be alive right now. So Liz, are your two siblings are engaged in the ocean or are they stuck uh, being part of that 29% of uh, the planet that's more terrestrial? <laughs> <laughs> well, my brother um, had a, a very long and storied career as a as a warden with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. And he just recently retired after being the longest serving warden in the Sonoma County, history of Sonoma County. Wow. And wow. And he was on the Marine enforcement team. So, you know, a real big part of his... He got to be on the water more than anybody else. It was great. He was was kind of widely known as the Red Ranger. Uh, And, you know, the the poachers and stuff would would basically lived in fear of him for many, many years. (laughs) Uh, Oh, good, for the Red Abalone uh, poachers. Right. I had a a police uh, lieutenant come along one time and, and tell me how, you know, just impressed they were because they had been assigned to a to like a gang enforcement unit uh over in i think in vallejo and it was a you know it's pretty rough area and they kind of came through this scene where they saw this one guy and he was completely surrounded by these really you know tough looking gang members and they were all out there with just you know kind of flashlights and all of them were armed they all had a knife or a weapon of some sort and it was my it was my brother right at the center of them checking all their fishing fishing licenses (laughs) 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 and he's just like one after the other show me your license as calm as cool as could be but the police wanted nothing to do with these guys and and here he was just making sure they were all being compliant in their um in their fishing activity on the side (laughs) and then my uh my sister, she she does more. She has more involvement in the kind of, I guess, in the arts and writes music and creates you know, textiles of various kinds. So she still has a connection to the ocean as well. And I know, Sylvia, you, you know, you went from a lot of technical exploration to building some of your own technology. And that's now the company that uh, Liz is president of, Dua Marine. Um, yeah, I maybe- started it, but... But Liz and her husband, Ian Griffith, really took it over. I started it after I left NOAA. I was a chief scientist of NOAA from 1990 for a couple of years. And when I left NOAA, I just started a little corporate shell around myself so that I could make a living. That morphed into what is has become of this phenomenon, deep ocean exploration and research. I really turned it all over to... Liz and Ian, they've really made a thriving enterprise out of something that was more of a vision when I began it, um, 1997. Uh, Liz is really more of a founder of DOER than I am. And 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 when she and Ian got together, they really took the expertise that Ian had developed over many years of working, again, in, on, around, and under the ocean diving in some places and under circumstances that make my heart quiver when I think of diving in tunnels and diving offshore and not so clear and wonderfully beautiful places, but as a, as a commercial diver. And 
I mean, those are real divers in the sense that you really have to know what you're doing. I talked to a commercial diver who had been uh, working pipelines 600 feet down yeah, that's in right. habitat. And yeah. I was telling him about some Navy SEAL I've been interviewing. And he said, yeah, Navy SEALs, they're great. They got 69 ways to kill you underwater, but hand them a wrench and they're lost. <laughs> and, and I think it's, it's, Accurate. it's, it's a dangerous field, uh, commercial diving. I, I think a lot of the technology that may make it safer is, is what you work on, Liz. So maybe just tell us a bit about what Doer does. And uh, Yeah. So, you know, when we first kind of started, you know, Ian was indeed working as a, as a commercial diver and his expertise or one of his ex- areas of expertise was doing very uh, long distance uh, pipeline penetrations. So he would find himself, you know, crawling up very small diameter pipes, you know, some as small as you know, even 20, 24 to 30 inches in diameter, uh, go, you know, like go a thousand feet up the pipe, you know, <laughs> and, and it was, it was real dicey work. And, and he learned that he could actually turn his six foot plus frame around in a 30 inch pipeline and get out, <laughs> kind of make a U-turn. He doesn't know how he did it, but he did it that whole need to to be able to investigate and remediate infrastructure led to the to the drive to create remotely operated vehicles that could do these same kinds of jobs but without as much risk to um, the commercial divers and it's really what kind of led to the creation of small remotely operated vehicles for use to assist and you know not to replace divers because they're essential underwater but to assist in the work around oil and gas platforms as well and other areas that are you know you can just kind of reduce or mitigate the risk to the to the humans in the sea but it doesn't replace them in, in most cases and so that's what really kind of led us into it with DOER to create tools that can go into extreme environments um, to work alongside divers to go deeper than divers can safely go and to really bring back the host of information that we need in order to make better decisions about how we interact with the ocean. Yeah, David, the big, one of the big headline issues environmentally of our time, one of the biggest land grabs on the planet is deep sea mining with the leases that have been permitted to a number of companies via countries who have the ability to get these long-term leases. And most of the People on the planet are simply unaware, and if many who are aware don't think it is a big problem. But Liz and Ian and their engineering team have come up with a remotely operated system now owned by the University of Hawaii. It's being deployed out in the Clarion-Clipperton zone to document and survey and show why this is really a bad idea. The ROV system that we built for the University of, of Hawaii is a it's a 6,000 meter rated system, so uh, it can go quite quite deep into the into the ocean. Uh, most of the area that's being targeted for the mining of these, um, I guess you'd call them a you know like a manganese nodule or a right uh, of of sorts. You know they're very slow growing. They're they're not like a dead rock. Like you know if you're if you got a mine on the land, you're taking out actual chunks of minerals. But these nodules are living systems, so each one kind of forms around typically around something like a fossil shark tooth or a, a, a whale's ear bone, something like that, something that's fallen from the surface and landed out there on the, on the plain. And over tens of thousands of years, these, uh, these microbial communities attract and fix these, these minerals, um, you know, cobalt, manganese, and so forth. 
that are then accumulating in these nodules. And over literally tens of thousands of years, they get to be maybe the size of a potato. But their thought is that they could be sort of hoovered up in some fashion, crushed up and have the minerals extracted and then return the slurry to the bottom in some way. And typically they're thinking about just pumping it off the side or trying to reintroduce it to the to the seabed or closer to the seabed. But what we found in, in the different surveys we've done with the uh, Lulakai ROV is that any kind of disturbance to the seabed out there is very long lasting. We revisited some tracks, test tracks of and operations that were done out there in the 1960s. And the area, the test area, has not recovered in any way, shape, or form. You can still exactly see where they did some trawls through the area and some survey work. Um, and it's as disturbed now as it was then. And even just being very careful to come through and take some biological samples with the Lulakai, coming back a few hours later to come back to, this, to the uh, place we started for recovery, the sediment is still suspended in the in the water column. So it, it's a very slow moving system. Change happens incrementally there. And the thought of having very large sort of, you know, trenching or picking vehicles developed to systematically go across the seabed and turn it up to, to take these nodules out is just, a, a, it's a gut-wrenching um, thought. I just, it's unimaginable. <laughs> and we need to call those minerals unobtainium, as Sylvia says. One of the most important aspects is to realize that, as Liz points out, these are living systems, living rocks, not dead stones. But more than that, it's a living system. Like coral reefs are not just about the coral, they're about the thousands of organisms that are associated with them. And it's true with manganese nodule formations as well. Octopuses gather as a, a nursery area, <laughs> places where at times they've been observed hundreds of octopuses sheltering their eggs. And there are sea cucumbers, but mostly we know enough to know that it's a diverse, complicated system that has taken not just tens of thousands of years, but millions of years to form. And it's arrogant on our part to think it doesn't matter that it's okay because it's far away from where we actually live. Looking at Earth from space, nothing is far away from where we live. We're all tied together. And we're concerned about old growth forests now, and we should be, but these are old growth systems that go back millions of years that we are proposing to tear up for short-term interest. And the rationale is, oh, now we need materials for batteries, for computers, for cell phones. And we do terrible things to the land. Let's go into the ocean where it really doesn't matter. It does matter. First of all, if we're going to extract minerals, take them out of the dump sites where we've already extracted the minerals and mine them as a first highly concentrated source, more than in the deep sea or on the land for lithium and cobalt and nickel. And secondly, if we have to go into what they call virgin sources, do it thinking like the earth instead of just bulldozing your way into pristine systems, assuming that our purposes in the short term are, are worth, worth the cost. I think Dormarine, you also, if I'm not mistaken, along with ROV's remote operated uh, subs, you also have some manned or in this case, woman uh, submersibles. Yeah. Yeah. So we, 
you know, certainly the, you know, the entire conflict mineral situation has, has really helped to accelerate the pace at which we're taking, a, you know, an approach of getting more humans into the sea so they can directly observe what is there and why it matters. And of course, the best way to do that is to do that with your own eyes. So the human occupied vehicles that we build, uh, you know, we've got a long history of, of dealing with submersibles, submersible vehicles for a host of reasons, you know, for research, for tourism. Um, we've, we've built a number of them for use on just for personal recreation, for use on some of these very large yachts as kind of a um, duality of having some science elements, but also some recreational elements. Oh, I, I agree. Once, once I have my helicopter on my yacht, I really want a submarine. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a natural thing. Um, but, the, but, you know, it's, it's really, you know, Sylvia often talks about sort of the, the ability that, that Jane Goodall had of kind of spending you know, quality time with, with chimpanzees and, and other great apes. And that over, you know, many years, she was able to, to really have that gift of time with them to, to get them to know them as individuals and so forth. But as divers, we're very constrained by the tank of air on our back and, and depth and cold and, you know, all these other factors that push against us. So it makes it hard to really get to know animals and systems as, in, as individuals that we take for granted of that ability on the land. So, you know, the submersible, you're able to go down and spend four, six, eight hours at a time, in Sylvia's case, overnight <laughs> uh, in a submersible and really get that gift of time to be able to observe and document, look at what the animals are doing, their relationship with one another, um, you know, cooperative hunting, and especially to see, really witness um, the damage that's been done to some of these areas. And, you know, we, again, going back to the, to the Lulukai ROV, we were going down on a, on a mission and we vehicle just come from, you know, kind of a bunch of uh, upgrades and so forth. So we went out on a test dive and we were down, it got down to 4,000 meters and we turned on the lights and cameras and we were confronted with a Dasani water bottle is the very first thing that we saw on the seabed. <laughs> so no sea cucumbers, but a Dasani water bottle. That's um, depressing. It, it really was, but but, you know, in so many areas, we've got things like derelict fishing net. We've got sea containers. We've got, you know, by the Channel Islands, we've got hundreds of barrels of DDT uh, laying around on bottom. So there's all these things that if we want politicians or, or policymakers to really be compelled to make positive change, we need to go. We need to show them this stuff and they need to see it directly. Sylvia, I know you've had some records diving in a gym suit and you spent a lot of time below deep below the ocean. Back in 1960, uh, Don Walsh and Picard were the first humans to actually get to the lowest point on the planet in the Marianas Trench. And and then uh, nothing happened for a long time. We spent hundreds of people out into space to you know look for signs of life like water. But it was until 2014 that uh, Jim Cameron went back down to the depths. And now you have a, uh, a fellow with a submersible that's taking a number of people down. Are, are, are you wanting to... Uh, get down to the D point. It was Victor Vescovo who I think did something pretty classy, not only taking Kathy Sullivan, the skywalking astronaut, to the deepest part of the ocean, but Don Walsh and Jacques Picard were the first to make that trip down in 1960. And Victor scooped up not only Don Walsh and took him back, but Don Walsh's son, Kelly. Wow. Down to where his, his father was. You can also pay big bucks to be taken down 
if you want to pay Victor to go. But he's been very generous with scientists and, and with gestures such as with Kelly and, and Don and Kathy. So, yeah, of course I want to go. And we've had the vision, certainly Liz and Ian have, and they have the engineering skill to go beyond the conventional technology that, you know, we, we've been able to go with materials that work as long ago as 1960, but using innovative systems, glass, that really is the best material for not only being able to see through it, but to get stronger with increased pressure. But you've got to get your sums right. It has to be precisely right. And it also takes investment, it takes somebody with who shares the vision, who has the wherewithal, not just to go booming off into space, but how about exploring our own blue planet from the inside out? Who wouldn't want to do that when you have the way, ways and means to go? So I think we're truly on the edge of the greatest era of exploration ever. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with host David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by Studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbarg. You can find Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, tear Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.